This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture Card. Earn unlimited 2x miles on every purchase. Plus, earn unlimited 5x miles on hotels and rental cars booked through Capital One Travel. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. This is the World Cafe. I'm Raina Duris, joined by John Morrison. John Morrison is a podcast host and the host of Culture Cipher Radio on WXPN in Philadelphia, where we make World Cafe. Every month he joins me for the Culture Corner. He connects the dots for us across all different genres of music. How's it going, John? I'm good, Raina. How are you? I'm doing great. Yeah. So this is the second week of our History of Dance music series that you're doing for us for Black History Month. Last week, we talked about the 1970s. We talked about disco. What are we doing this week? Like you said, last week, we dug in the disco. You know, we talked about Philadelphia International and uh, the influence of that label on disco and, and really the role that the 70s played in establishing club culture and DJ-oriented dance music as we know it. And while the 70s brought an end to disco as a mainstream phenomenon, the energy behind dance music and club culture didn't go nowhere. Uh, it, it continued into the 80s. And today I would like to talk about the 80s and its role as a, a crucial decade for the evolution of dance music, especially electronic dance music. What made the 80s so significant for dance music? How was it How was it so different from the 70s? The 80s were really a time for radical change in the sound of dance music. So in the 1970s, the overwhelming majority of records were made in the studio, right? Disco records in particular were uh, these grand productions that required an entire cast of session musicians, arrangers, string and brass sections. It was a huge undertaking making these records. The 1980s were different because uh, in the 80s, you got the introduction of relatively affordable music making equipment. programmable drum machines, synthesizers were scaled down in, in size and price in the 1980s. You had uh, the explosion of, of uh, multi-track cassette recorders to market. So now musicians could build small production studios at home and make records for cheap. So this increased accessibility directly led to the creation of genres like house music and techno in the 80s. And the musicians that pioneered these genres were all deeply influenced by disco and the club culture of the 70s, but they just made their own homemade electronic version of it. So, you know, disco didn't die at the end of the 70s. It just lived on in different ways. Maybe you could draw that line for us. Like, How exactly did disco and the club culture of the 70s influence the 80s? Yeah, club music and, and club culture was still uh, very important in dance music in the 80s. And, you know, there's, there's really 
a symbiotic relationship or a mutually dependent relationship between the dancers and DJs in the club and the producers at home and in the studio uh, who were making this music. It's, it's all connected. And, uh, and you know, in, in most examples, the DJs at the club and the producers were the same, you know, same people, one in the same. Uh, so it was all connected. And the 1970s were ruled by uh, these legendary DJs like David Mancuso, whose famous loft parties in Manhattan inspired a whole generation of DJs. Folks like Nicky Ciano, David Todd, and Bill Kennedy here in Philadelphia. All these DJs who were rooted in disco and club culture in the 70s directly inspired the next generation of DJs, producers, and remixers who would push the sound forward in the 80s. So, you know, I keep saying this, but it's, it's all connected. Well, let's hear something that really embodies that 80s club sound. What can you tell us about Gwen Guthrie's song, Padlock? I feel like I say this uh, on every segment <laughs> that, that we do together, but Padlock might be my favorite song. <laughs> You do say that, but I like it every time. It's always a good song. Yeah, it is. I I love this record. I used to hear this tune by Gwen Guthrie a lot as a kid. They would play it on the radio. They would play it at at block parties. The version uh, that we're gonna hear is the remix by Larry Levan, the legendary Larry Levan, who was the resident DJ at a club called the Paradise Garage, which was one of the seminal. Uh, New York discos of the late 70s and, and throughout the 80s. Gwen and Larry really came together to make this gorgeous, bittersweet club song. It's a breakup song. It, it's a little sad, but it's also uplifting. Gwen Guthrie is telling us, you know, sometimes you need to close your heart off a little bit to, to a person who's not taking care of you emotionally. And I think that it really does embody this energy behind club music it's it's danceable and also deeply emotional i couldn't imagine hearing this record you know this is before my time but i couldn't imagine hearing this in a club <laughs> you know and in the early 1980s it, it would have like swept me away but yeah this this is a a, a perfect perfect song John Morrison says the song is his favorite song. You know it's going to be a jam. We should make a whole compilation of John Morrison's favorite, favorite songs. songs. Go back to every Culture Corner episode and put them all together. Let's do it. <laughs> that was Gwen Guthrie, Padlock on World Cafe. I'm Raina Duras here with John Morrison for the Culture Corner. Every week for Black History Month, John is taking us through the decades, the history of dance music. This week, we are in the 80s. Uh, we've talked about disco and the club scene that developed around the music, the dance music on the East Coast in the 80s, but the next step in the evolution of dance music would happen in the Midwest. Tell us about house music and, and tell us about how it started in Chicago. Yeah, the, the story of house music uh, is is very interesting. In 1977, uh, 
Larry LeVan was offered a job as the resident DJ for a club in Chicago called The Warehouse. Larry LeVan, as the story goes, didn't want to leave New York, so he turned the offer down, and his friend Frankie Knuckles took it instead. So when Frankie came to Chicago in the spring of of 1977, he started his residency at the club. So of course, people in Chicago were already familiar with disco. They already had uh, their own club scene, Uh, but there was something about the energy that uh, Frankie brought to Chicago that influenced generations of of local DJs who would see him play and and would go on to create what we know to be house music. And it's, it's also worth noting that like most of the great discos of the era, you know, the Paradise Garage, the Catacombs here in Philly, uh, the warehouse was primarily a gay club, specifically a black gay club. So this scene and this music uh, was was very much uh, separate from the mainstream. So as we get into the 1980s, you have Chicagoans like Jesse Saunders, uh, Ron Hardy, Larry Hurd, a.k.a. Mr. Fingers. These folks took the sound that, that Frankie and Larry LeVan and all of these folks uh, had established and what they were playing uh, in the clubs and they basically, you know, were making their own homegrown version of it. And and they really established Chicago as the new center of gravity for black dance music throughout the 80s. You've brought some classic Chicago house for us. Tell us about Marshall Jefferson's Move Your Body, the house music anthem. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all in the name, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Move Your Body is probably the most enduring uh, Chicago house record. You can still play this at a club today and people will go crazy. And, you know, like a lot of great songs, Move Your Body is really a meeting of, of many different styles of music. You can hear the influence of gospel in the piano on this tune, which makes sense because gospel music, as we know it, was created in Chicago as well. And the disco influences there, too. And, and there's soul music. It's really like a library of black music packed into one song. Here is Marshall Jefferson, Move Your Body, the house music anthem on World Cafe. Body, the house music anthem. That was Marshall Jefferson. You're listening to the World Cafe. I'm Raina Duris, talking to John Morrison today on the Culture Corner, week two of our exploration of the history of dance music that John's taking us through for Black History Month. Chicago was not the only city in the Midwest that defined dance music in the 80s. What can you tell us about Detroit techno? Yeah, so the creation of Detroit techno is actually 
credited to three individuals from Belleville, Michigan, which is uh, a suburb outside of Detroit. That's Juan Atkins, Derek May, and Kevin Saunderson. In the early 80s, Juan Atkins had a whole home studio. He was a teenager. And, you know, like we said uh, earlier, a lot of the uh, music making, electronic music making equipment had become relatively cheap in the 80s. So people could build little project studios and and work on demos and, and make records and stuff in their house. So Juan Atkins was doing this. The music that he was making inspired the young people around him, Derek May and Kevin Saunderson in particular, talk about going over Juan's house after school and seeing him having, you know, synthesizers and tape machines and stuff in his house and just making, you know, this kind of like futuristic dance music that we would come to know as techno. And that inspired them to make their own music. And, you know, the three of them are affectionately known as as the Bellevue Three. And you can really trace techno and everything that came after it from these three individuals. They were obviously influenced by Black American dance music, disco, you know, Parliament Funkadelic, all of that. Uh, But they were also obsessed with European electronic music, Kraftwerk in particular. So they combine these two great musical traditions, and that's how we get techno. That is incredible. Like when you're talking about them, you know, hanging out after school, they're they're literally kids. Yeah. Like these are teenagers doing this when they're, they're they're super young making this music. Yeah, I think Juan Atkins was like 19 when his first record came out. You know, wow. all of these guys knew each other in high school. And it's crazy to think about it, like kids creating something that didn't exist in the world before it. Yeah. What are you doing in the garage? Oh, nothing, Mom. <laughs> Just revolutionizing popular music. <laughs> right. Um, What's for dinner later? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, we have another song to listen to. What can you tell us about Model 500 and the song No UFOs? Yeah, Model 500 is actually a pseudonym of Juan Atkins, and No UFOs is a classic song. It's it's kind of like a a sci-fi club song, and it's so strange and and forward thinking for its time. You could tell that you know Juan was obsessed with craft work, and you know all of those uh, European like electronic bands. And he was taking this sound and making his own black Detroit Midwestern version of it. You know, you can really see that Juan and really that whole first generation of techno producers from Detroit uh, were very ahead of the curve as far as uh, music that was being made at the time. This is Model 500, No UFOs, World Cafe. They say no you at all. Why is 
on World Cafe. You just heard No UFOs from Model 500. I'm talking to John Morrison today on the Culture Corner. I'm Rana Duris. This is week two of John's uh, walkthrough of the history of dance music that we're doing for Black History Month. How did dance music in the 80s, which we've been talking about today, how did it influence the music that we are now hearing these days? Why was that period so important? You know, sometimes I, I have seriously have jokingly refer to the 80s as the most innovative decade in music history. And when you look at it, this decade and electronic dance music in, in particular, as well as hip hop, really changed how music would be made moving forward. You know, house, techno, hip hop. In the 80s, folks started making these styles of music on drum machines, synthesizers, samplers. The 80s were really uh, a golden period for electronic music, which really set us on the path to where we are now, where most popular music, regardless of whether or not it's it's coded as uh, or classified as electronic music, most music incorporates some aspect of electronic music production. The dot, the dot connector, the dot connector, the spot corrector. I say, I love you, you say, whatever. The 80s really gave birth to a new way of making music and a new way of thinking about music that that uh, was different than, than what we had in the 70s, 60s, 50s, 40s, you know, really from the, the history of, of recorded music up to that point. So without the 80s and all of these innovative records that came out at the time and the technology that facilitated the making of, of these records, you don't really get music making as we know it today. We're going to hear how things changed and how they continue to develop next week as we head into the 90s in this series on the history of dance music. John, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Raina. A, a pleasure, always. This is so fun. I'll see you next week. Yeah, see you next week. John Morrison is a podcast host and the host of Culture Cypher Radio on WXPN in Philadelphia, where we make World Cafe. He joins me every month for the Culture Corner. I'm Raina Duras, back in a moment with more World Cafe. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity don't begin or end with the news cycle. That's because we know race and identity impact every person and influence every story. We're getting into all of it with new voices each week on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, State Farm. In the market for small business insurance, State Farm knows your business is your life. State Farm agents are small business owners too, so they know what it takes. They can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Small business insurance from State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit slash NPR and save an additional $200.